so I actually spent a big chunk of this weekend at the Venezuelan embassy in, D in DC, where there's a standoff and kind of a proxy mini war going on between the opposition, which are the Guaido supporters, and the embassy protectors, what they call themselves, which include groups like uh, Code Pink and the, I believe they're called the Progressive Collective, but I'll need to look at that again. But it's uh, headed up by um, Margaret Flowers. So she actually ran for Senate in Maryland in the past, and she's a, a big activist. And of course, you probably know of Code Pink because they've been around for a while since Occupy, I believe it was, and they're involved in lots of different actions. But this one is major. So the background of what's happening at the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. is that they're... So Maduro, the elected uh, president in Venezuela right now, obviously has control of the embassy in D.C. Now, the Guaido people think that that should not be the case at all. So the Guaido people are outside of the embassy protesting, banging pots and pans, uh, running sirens, yelling into or blowing into blowhorns, yelling into megaphones, doing everything they can do to cause a noise, cause ruckus. They've even tried to break into the embassy. Now, inside the embassy, there are currently no ambassadors or anything like that. What's in there are what are called the embassy protectors. They call themselves the peaceful embassy protectors. So they're in there. Margaret Flowers is one of them, if you want to find her on Twitter. And uh, Medea Benjamin has been inside. Uh, Ariel Gold has been inside. Those are two Code Pink girls. And there, I don't know how many are, are inside the embassy right now. I guess around 10. So they're inside the embassy. And surrounding the embassy, embassy are supporters of the peace uh peace protectors or and or the opposition, which are the Guaido supporters. So these are often wealthy Venezuelans who have come to the United States and they believe that Guaido is the official leader or should be able to take the place of Maduro. And this is obviously also the stance of the United States, unfortunately, and a number of other countries. I believe it's 50 countries now recognize Juan Guaido as the leader, whereas the elected leader is Maduro. So uh, that's kind of the background on that. So what I saw there was a lot of shenanigans, and I'll play some of those shenanigans for you. Um, as I said, the opposition, the Guaido side, was trying to break into the embassy by banging on it, trying to drill through to get inside. And mind you, there are Secret Service and police everywhere outside of the embassy. They're covering it everywhere. And from what I saw and from what's been reported, they are actually on the side of the Guaido people. They won't help the embassy protectors. They've done a lot of shady things, including what I heard today from reporter Alex Rubenstein, who is embedded inside with the embassy protectors, is that they cut down trees that embassy protectors were posting uh, or hanging signs on in support of 
not having a coup. And that is what this is. It's a coup attempt. Now, the Guaido side will tell you, oh, no, this is not a coup because Guaido is the recognized leader. So, of course, it can't be a coup. But it is a coup. It's most definitely a coup. And it's yet another one where the United States has its hands in regime change. And there's no, there are no two ways about it. So, as I said, Secret Service and police stand aside and do nothing. They've arrested um, peace protectors who are doing nothing but being peaceful. The opposition side has um, assaulted code pink people, embassy protectors, um, and yet those are the ones who get hauled off to jail. I was, you know, uh, when I was there reporting, I was harassed by the opposition. They were, you know, while I was reporting, like tapping me on the back. Um, when I turned around they called me ugly and then denied it and um said you know no one wants to touch you you know denied tapping me on the back and uh blew air horns in my ear shine lights in my face like strobe light flashing which by the way is a health concern you might say oh assault assault via light is nothing but really for people with epilepsy for people with migraines like me I get migraines it's very triggering and for people who are on the spectrum as well it can be very triggering to have these lights flashing and flashing in your face and so while I tried to interview uh, peace protectors they were flashing the lights during our interview they were ripping posters out behind me and so I actually had to cut uh, an interview short, for example, and that was the only one I was able to conduct with one of the peace protectors because all day from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. where the noise ordinances uh, land, it's it's far too noisy. There's music playing, there's uh, people shouting into those uh, bullhorns and things like that as I described. So it's quite a scene at the embassy. There are rumors that the police plan to go in and raid the embassy. And all, even now, the police are not making the opposition step aside or clear an area so that people can get food into the embassy. And that's one of the, one of the biggest concerns is that people inside the embassy need food, medications, and things like that, toiletries, and it's been a major ordeal trying to get those things inside. What they've had to implement is kind of this pulley system where they'll, uh, people at the bottom, you know, the people at the top will throw a rope down and people at the bottom who are allies tie a bag to the end of the rope and then they have to pull the, the rope up to the top. So that's the only way they've been able to get food in there but the people inside do seem to be in good spirits. Um, it can't be easy. They have to deal with people trying to break in. They have to deal with the threat of raid. They have to deal with a lot of stuff. So that's where I was all weekend. There's more to it than that. I'll show you some video. And I actually have a lot of video footage that I haven't been able to upload yet because for some reason it's taking forever to get the files uploaded and downloaded. Um, that's a whole other story, but I will have that footage up for you because I think it's very important uh, what's going on at the Venezuelan embassy and what's going on in Venezuela. It is a coup attempt, as I said, and who knows how it's going to end here in the United States at the proxy war at the embassy or how it's going to end in Venezuela. 
this past Tuesday, there was a coup attempt um, by Juan Guaido and his supporters. And actually, it, it failed. And what they tried to do was get Maduro officials on their side. So they secretly had talks with Maduro officials and convinced them that they could keep their jobs if they defected to the Guaido side and outwardly came out against Maduro and forced Maduro to flee. That was their goal. It did not happen. If you listen to the United States, it's Russia's fault that it didn't happen, of course that Russia at the last minute convinced Maduro not to go and he stayed. What, who knows what actually happened behind the scenes? There are a lot of unknowns, but what we do know is that those Maduro officials decided not to come out against Maduro and not defect to the Guaido side. And so the coup just didn't happen. And there's a lot of backtracking on from the Guaido side saying, oh no, that wasn't that wasn't us trying to do anything. That was, you know, the timeline was moved forward and that's just the first step of many steps. And they're, they're really trying to weasel their way out. And Guaido, by the way, is this 35 year old who looks confused most of the time. And his statements, if you read them when he's interviewed by reporters and things like that, his statements are nonsensical. He does not seem to be much of a leading figure at all. He was installed. He used to be an activist. Now he's apparently the leader of Venezuela, when in reality he is not. He's recognized by a lot of countries, as I mentioned, but he is not the true leader, the true elected leader of Venezuela. And think what you want about Maduro. Um, he is the elected leader, and if people want him out, then they, he needs to be democratically ousted and not ousted via a coup. Um, and what a lot of people get wrong about the embassy protectors is not all of them are pro-Maduro. Maduro has made a lot of mistakes. He screwed up a lot, and but he is democratically elected. So what people uh, in the embassy protectors side are on is the side of peace, the side of negotiation, the side of democracy. The side of of Guaido is on the side of a coup attempt, even if they refuse to call it that. What I want to do is, because I know me talking about Venezuela and the Venezuelan um, protests at the embassy in D.C. is not really enough, I want you to see this interview that I did with someone named Mara. She's a lawyer for the Peace Protectors. She is an observer. She makes sure everything that's going on is legit. She's counsel there to kind of keep things smooth, to observe, to make sure that nothing egregious is going on. And she's, she's wonderful. Interviewing her was quite great. Um, but you'll see that the opposition side, the Guaido side, was shining lights in our face and was harassing me from behind and all sorts of things. So I had to cut the interview short. But what I did get was, was very good and will give you some insight into what's going on there. Well, what's really happening is because the people inside are lawfully present, uh, what the Trump administration and the federal law enforcement uh, and local law enforcement have decided to do is to try and force them to leave on their own. Because obviously if they were not lawfully present, then they could take action to lawfully remove them. But instead, 
they've taken the extraordinary step of allowing these mobs to form, mobs that have physically assaulted people in front of law enforcement officers who do nothing, mobs that have been smashing on the doors they were trying to smash into the building tonight, and that's why we're out here again, was to intervene and stop this effort. If these guys who are extremely violent, they've been issuing death threats and rape threats uh, constantly to peaceful activists who are here. There's been no cursing, no yelling, just standing here peacefully. Is that kind of your, uh, the way that you guys want to pre uh, present yourselves as the protectors? Well, the peace activists have in fact been peaceful. They've been very disciplined. They've been peaceful even in the face of physical assaults. They haven't responded as they would be within their rights to defend themselves very frequently. Um, as you can see, the, the, while it's childish and pathetic, the light flashing, it's also really emblematic of this constant, constant effort. They're always blaring sirens or flashing lights. What they're really incapable of doing is, uh, is you know, articulating anything more than the fact that um, they behave like thugs. And that's one of the things that's been curious to me as I watched from afar is that law enforcement is not doing their jobs in my estimation. I mean, I saw that Ariel Gold and Medea Benjamin were assaulted again and that they, the cops said unless everyone is arrested who was involved that no one would be arrested. Is this kind of the consistent action from law enforcement here? Well, when you say they're not doing their job, thats I know what you mean, but the fact is I think they are doing their job. Law enforcement is clearly under orders to allow this to happen. This is not, you know, the normal way that they would quote-unquote enforce the law. So this couldn't be happening unless they were being directed to allow it to happen. That's what we know is going on right now. The State Department, the Trump administration, the Secret Service, they are directing this to happen. What you just saw there was one of the legal protectors for the embassy protectors, and what she describes is completely accurate from what I observed. The police do nothing, and she was right when she said, when I said the police don't seem to be doing their jobs. Well, she was absolutely correct in saying, I know what you mean, but they are doing their jobs. It does seem like these orders are coming from the top. They're coming from somewhere, somewhere that wants the Guaido side to be successful, and that would be the United States. As I said, the United States does not recognize the Maduro uh, presidency. They recognize the Guaido coup attempt, and that's what we'll call it as a coup attempt, even though you'll see that language being erased all over the place. And you can you know, even if you're just someone who's happening across this scene and you just, you don't have, let's imagine you don't have a side and you just walk to the Venezuelan embassy and observe what's going on on both sides. What you will see are the Guaido supporters be behaving erratically, irrationally, doing the lights, doing the sirens, uh, physically hurting people, and you'll see the peace protectors being peaceful you know, as is in their name. And so it's easy to see which side you would want to be on, the side of peace, the side of reason, the side of wanting diplomacy and democracy, and not the side of a coup attempt. And um, Mara put that very, very well in what we talked about. So 
to show you a little bit more and Mara called these people thugs as well and I completely agree with that because of what I experienced I'm a reporter and as a reporter I didn't you know I I wasn't with I wasn't there are reporters that are embedded with the peace protectors and I think that's great and wonderful and ethical but I made the decision to uh, be able to stand with with both sides and observe both sides and see what's going on I didn't announce you know which which side I was on in getting that interview with Mara I did I did tell them what kind of reporter I am and uh, the stance that we at status coup take about this Venezuelan coup attempt um, because I wanted her to know that I wasn't adversarial I wasn't going to be one of those violent people because they've dealt with enough <laughs> I wanted to make sure she knew who I was and what my my kind of mission was so but otherwise I as I said I stood with both sides I didn't harass anyone I didn't um, do anything other than film so I want to show you this next video where you'll see that I am physically harassed I am verbally harassed and they don't want to allow my reporting they didn't want me there at all and I you know I hadn't said a word I just started filming and then you know of course as people started tapping me and harassing me I did speak back and you'll see that I remained calm of course but I wasn't just going to stand there and let them harass me just for being a journalist so let's take a look at that Trying to learn your journalism. Don't touch me. Nobody wants to touch you. So far, me. I've had wonderful nobody, interactions. Nobody wants to touch you. I'm ugly. No, I said nobody wants to touch you. Ah. I'm here for you. If you say you're ugly, I really don't care. Don't, don't call her names. No, no, you're no, no helping her cause. No, no, no. I never don't. called her a name. No, no, no. I won't do that. You guys really like making things up, don't you? You guys do not know what it is to go ahead and be in communism and camps and everything else. You know why? My mother spent over 10 years in a prison camp. I don't think you have their... So I really don't care about this. And you guys have no idea and what goes on with socialism and communism. Well, they don't even know why they're here. They're just Well, they get paid. I mean, look at look at the blank faces. You racist, you very much racist bitch. Oh, you we in Venezuela don't have your division in here like you we are having here. Racist. Literally you guys, standing here, just don't you guys racist. racist. So you're working for the embassy? Is that why you're here? There you have the wonderful time that uh, that I had there, and. And you, you saw that I was called a racist bitch. I was called all sorts of names. Um, uh, right before I started the video, I had been vigorously tapped on the shoulder uh, by one of the Guaido people just for filming. 
And you could also hear that the Guaido people were, were telling the peaceful protesters, oh, you're paid, you're getting paid. Who's paying you? You know, look at the blank stares on your faces. How much are you getting paid? Which is ridiculous. These people are there because they are passionate about not having a coup in Venezuela. They aren't paid. There is one uh, Guaido person who said that they must be getting paid $30,000 a year or something like or $30,000 to come protest. Uh, or to, to come be in the embassy, and that there were millions of dollars flowing through um, these peace protectors and all of that. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. The assumptions and the lies and the conspiracies that the Guaido people seem to believe only seem to fuel their anger, fuel their harassing of the peace protectors and journalists, I'm not the only journalist who was messed with. Basically, every journalist, especially women who went there, were harassed with. I was catcalled. They would, you know, they would do their the catcalling whistle and then go, you know, th these men. And I was actually surrounded by a group of men doing that at one point, which was super annoying. And they just seek to demean people, demean journalists, demean women. Other people, um, not journalists that I know of, but other peace protectors have gotten rape threats, death threats, things like that. Allegedly, one of the other journalists that was there, I believe the one from Telesor, uh, she had her house tampered with, you know, the door to her home tampered with after getting such a threat from one of the Guido supporters. So these people are scary there's no two ways about it i'm sure some of some of them were nice some of the venezuelan on the guido side were very nice to me uh, i actually conducted about a 16 minute interview with some of them which was very interesting and i will be posting portions of that and you know they they're good people i hate that term there are good people on both sides i know that's a very dangerous term but what i mean is there were people who truly believed that Guaido was the official leader and truly believed that Maduro is evil and are passionate because of that. And they, they peacefully are, are there in support of Venezuela and what they believe Venezuela, the path Venezuela should be headed down. There are other people who are this just there to cause noise and wreak havoc and all that. There are other people there who are violent. There are other people there who are racist. There are other people there who um, are conspiracy theorists. There are a lot of people who were there, and you can't lump everyone together, but the fact that I was sexually harassed and verbally harassed and physically harassed as a journalist is obviously not okay. It's not okay for that to happen to anyone. And it seems to be the case for the journalists and peace protectors who are there daily. There's more going on in Venezuela. And I want to show you one very interesting article by Anya, per uh, let me see how to pronounce her name, Anya Perample of um, Gray Zone. The Gray Zone is a great, if you aren't familiar with it, it's a great website. You should definitely check it out. 
But one of the things happening with Venezuela is this, and this was just published today, and it's, it was the first I'd heard about it, so I definitely wanted to make sure that you heard about it as well. U.S. State Department publishes, then deletes, sadistic Venezuela hit list boasting of economic ruin. The Gray Zone has a, obtained a list of key outcomes on Venezuela deleted out of apparent embarrassment by the State Department. It boasts of wrecking the nation's economy, destabilizing its military, and puppeteering its political opposition. Again, this is by Anya Perample. And she says, on, a, on April 24th, six days before self-proclaimed Venezuelan interim president Juan Guaido's attempt to violently overthrow Venezuela's democratically elected government alongside a handful of military defectors, the U.S. State Department published a fact sheet that boasted of Washington's central role in the ongoing coup attempt. After realizing the incriminating nature of its error, the State Department quickly acted to remove the page. And that's another thing that I want to make extremely, extremely clear is how involved the United States is in this coup attempt. The bottom line is that the United States wants Venezuela's oil. And so just like in other countries and with other regimes, uh, we are forcing regime change. The Gray Zone has obtained a full copy of the expunged report. The deleted page puts to bed any claims of Guaido's independence from Washington, as the State Department emphasizes the fact that he announced his interim presidency in January. At the top of a section dedicated to breaking down key outcomes of U.S. efforts with regard to Venezuela. U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Kimberly Breyer, recently took to Twitter to claim that, since he became acting president, Juan Guaido has given tangible results to the people of Venezuela. Her tweet was accompanied with an infographic detailing alleged accomplishments of the powerless coup administration based on data compiled by the legally defunct National Assembly, the only governing body actually controlled by Guaido. But the Venezuela fact sheet posted and then deleted days earlier by the State Department told a dramatically different story. The State Department's Economic Hit List Entitled U.S. Actions on Venezuela, the document boasted that U.S. policy had effectively presented the Venezuelan government from participating in the international market and has led to the freezing of its overseas assets. It read like a sadistic celebration of Washington's retribution against the Venezuelan population as a whole, the kind of collective punishment which is illegal according to Article 33 of the Geneva Conventions. The State Department gloated in the deleted fact sheet that its policy had ensured that the Maduro government cannot rely on the U.S. financial system to conduct business, noting key outcomes of U.S. actions include the fact that roughly $3.2 billion of Venezuelans overseas are frozen. It went on to boast that Venezuela's oil production fell to 736,000 barrels per day in March, substantially reducing government revenue. If I were the State Department, I wouldn't brag about causing a cut in oil production to 763,000 barrels per day, which is a 36% drop, in just the two months of February and March this year. Mark Wisebro, co-director at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, told the Gray Zone. This means even more premature deaths than the tens of thousands that resulted from sanctions last year. 
Wisebro recently co-authored a bracing report which found that 40,000 Venezuelans died between 2017 and 2018 as a direct result of U.S. sanctions. Now, the U.S. sanctions piece is something that the Guaido supporters completely deny have any effect on Venezuela. They say that, you know, Venezuelans have been under Chavez and then and now under Maduro, that that's the reason why people are suffering there and not U.S. sanctions. But clearly, with 40,000 deaths being caused by U.S. sanctions, they are an immense, immense problem and something that Guaido supporters really need to pay attention to. The State Department patted itself on the back for announcing its preparedness to provide an additional $20 million in initial humanitarian assistance to Venezuela. However, the CEPR report concluded that the Trump administration sanctions implemented in August 2017 resulted in a $6 billion in oil a loss of $6 billion in oil revenue over the ensuing year alone. While the State Department praised the opposition for providing medical and hygiene attention to over 6,000 Venezuelans, those numbers dwarf in comparison to the 300,000 people CEPR estimated to be at risk because of lack of access to medicines or treatment, including 80,000 people with HIV who have not had anti antitroviral treatment since 2017, 16,000 people who need dialysis, 16,000 people with cancer, and 4 million with diabetes and hypertension. In other words, the supposed Venezuela crisis response assistance touted by the State Department is not even a band-aid over the gaping wound that U.S. unilateral coercive measures have inflicted on the country. In Wisebro's view, the policy and outcomes promoted by the State Department in the disappeared document will merely lead to more cuts in imports of medicine, food, medical equipment, and inputs necessary to maintain water, health, and sanitation infrastructure. Having denied the Venezuelan government the, the ability to provide for its own population, the U.S. has essentially promised that thousands more deaths will occur. The State Department did not respond to the Gray Zone's request for a comment on the fact sheet it deleted. So that's another important point. With these sanctions, more people are going to die, more people are going to suffer. And it's also giving another reason, you know, these sanctions are giving more and more reasons for certain Venezuelans, the Guaido supporters, to blame Maduro for what's going on, for the healthcare failures, for the food failures, and even blaming um, socialism itself for what's happening, rather than blaming U.S. sanctions and related measures. A list of confessions. In a recent interview with the Gray Zone, Venezuela's ambassador to the United Nations, Samuel Moncada, characterized the deleted State Department fact sheet as a list of confessions. Imagine if any other country says, it's proud of saying that we are destroying the economy of our neighbor. We are proud that we destroyed the political system of our neighbor. We are proud that they are suffering. They are saying we are waging war against Venezuela, Moncada emphasized. The ambassador went on to accuse the U.S. of engaging in bullying rather than international diplomacy. Uh, I don't need to read this entire thing to you. You get the idea. So the fact that they deleted this document shows an amount of guilt. And the facts in the document clearly show 
that the um, pro-democracy side is in the right. Those U.S. sanctions are crippling. The United States has its hand in yet another attempt at regime change. Um, just to make you a little bit angry, let's see what Rachel Maddow has to say about Venezuela now. This is also on the Gray Zone. As I said, a great website you should check out. Rachel Maddow endorses regime change in Venezuela to push Russia back, sympathizes with Bolton and Pompeo. This is by Aaron Mate, who we've had on Status Coup and who is great. The top-rated MSNBC host took her trademark brand of liberal militarism to new levels by branding efforts to avert a catastrophic war against Venezuela as, what else, colluding with Russia. The loudest voice among the corporate media hack pack doubling down on Russiagate conspiracies is MSNBC's Rachel Maddow. On May 3rd, Maddow took her propaganda to an entirely new level of militaristic cheerleading, launching into a rant that offered de facto encouragement for the current neocon cause du jour, regime change in Venezuela. Maddow not only cast Trump as a Russian stooge for daring to discuss and possibly de-escalate the Venezuelan crisis with Russian President Vladimir Putin, the top-rated liberal cable news host expressed sympathy for John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, the most militaristic members of the Trump administration, which is absolutely ridiculous. Since the Trump administration first launched its coup attempt against the government of President Nicolas Maduro in January, Maddow and other conspiracy theorists have done their best to ignore it. For one, acknowledging this brazen coup effort would show their hyperventilation about the Russian attack on our election to be a hypocritical force, hypocritical for farce. It is far more difficult to liken stolen emails and juvenile Russian social media posts to Pearl Harbor or 9-11 when your supposedly defenseless country is openly trying to overthrow a foreign government via lethal sanctions, popping up the coup plotters and trying to trigger a military revolt. When Maddow finally broke her silence on Venezuela, it was on May 3rd after Trump held a phone call with Putin to discuss, among other things, lowering the temperature on Venezuela. The diplomatic contact between two world leaders should have been considered routine, but in the feverish world of liberal conspiracism, it was another opportunity for hallucinatory claims of collusion and the posting of homophobic Trump-Putin memes on social media. And Maddow, this is what she has said, even though this whole administration spent all week saying that Russia was interfering in Venezuela and propping up the Venezuelan dictator there, Turns out President Trump now says Putin isn't doing that at all because Putin told him so. And so, hey, John Bolton and hey, Mike Pompeo, are you guys enjoying your jobs right now? You each thought your job this week was to name, shame, and threaten and counter Russian government involvement in Venezuela while saber-rattling about how everybody else better get out of the way because the U.S. is really mad about it. Guys, turns out your actual job is figuring out how and why you work for a president who says whatever Vladimir Putin tells him. Maddow went on to offer empathy for National Security Advisor John Bolton, noting that he had just told CNN this week that the Russians like nothing better than putting a thumb in our eyes and that their behavior is unacceptable to us. Maddow went on to mock Bolton, not for his hawkishness, but for the public incongruity between his stance and President Trump. Maddow tweeted, How do you come to work anymore if you're John Bolton? 
Maddo says, yeah, you thought that was your job, but not at all. Not after Vladimir Putin gets done with President Trump today. This is who you're working for. You thought your job was to push Russia back because of what they're doing in Venezuela. The president spent an hour on the phone with Vladimir Putin today. Putin told him he's not in Venezuela, so now the new position of the U.S. government in Venezuela. It doesn't surprise you, I'm sure, that Maddo is taking a hawkish stance. It would have surprised you years ago, probably, because back then Maddo was kind of a progressive hero. And now she is, um, let's say, colluding with John Bolton and friends. And it's disgusting. And, you know, years ago, I would have been shocked that this is this is her position. But she's so blinded by Putin and Russia that she doesn't see that she is pushing for regime change. She's pushing for war. She is not pushing for diplomacy and free and fair elections, you know, democracy in Venezuela. And let's see what our good friend Joe Biden has to say about this next. So this is actually a tweet by Alina, Alina, I'm not sure how she pronounces it, from Telesor, and it is of Ariel Gold, who is of Code Pink, and um, they actually ran into Joe Biden, so uh, Ariel bravely asked him questions and asked him his position on Venezuela and asked him to visit the Venezuelan embassy. So let's watch this. It's really nice to meet you. Um, I would like to, I'm really disappointed in the position that you're taking on Venezuela. You admitted that you made a mistake with Iraq and it's dangerous to make the same mistake again, going to war in Venezuela. Absolutely. Do you know what's happening right now at the Venezuelan embassy? Just down the street. Would you come by? Would you come by? Would you come by? You really have to give Ariel Gold some kudos because she did what what journalists won't do, which is go up to Joe Biden and ask him direct questions about what's going on and ask him to come to the scene, you know, ask him to come to the Venezuelan embassy. And his answers were interesting. He said, we should not be going to war. So you would think that this would be clipped and posted all over the media, but of course it's not. But you can find that on Elena Duarte's um, Twitter, and you can also find it on Elise Gold's Twitter. Or Ariel Gold, excuse me. Her name is Ariel Elise Gold. You can find that on her Twitter or Code Pinks as well. Last but not least on Venezuela today is uh, Mike Gravel's answer. And he has a great answer on what's happening in Venezuela. Mike Gravel says, no matter what you think of the coup attempt in Venezuela, it's obvious. The U.S. must stay out of it and stop interfering. The same old hawks, Bolton, Abrams, may sacrifice blood and treasure for oil and power. If you're in D.C., please help the embassy protectors of Code Pink. So that's pretty remarkable uh, that Mike Gravel 
came out with that. Actually, it's not remarkable for him. It's expected for him because that's the kind of guy he is. But this shows you the difference between Biden and someone like Mike Gravel. Now, I will say Bernie has not been super strong on this. So hopefully mm -hmm. he does come around. Uh, as I said, I'll have more on Venezuela tomorrow. I'm going to compile some more of the footage I have from the embassy. The last thing that I want to do is Nancy Pelosi's take on running centrists as the way to win and the best path forward. Oh, Nancy, 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 Nancy. So here's a piece in Truth Out and it's titled Nancy Pelosi's winning strategy is to appease centrists. This is by Karen Garcia and Sardonicki. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tells the New York Times that the way to beat Trump is not through impeachment or championing progressive causes. To win, Democrats have to be more friendly to centrists, which is neoliberal speak for the donor and corporate class which owns her organization. If you cower, they, the mythical center of the electorate, will come. Remember how well that smarmy strategy worked out when Neville Chamberlain tried to appease Hitler by granting him permission to invade neighboring countries in the belief that the rest of Europe and capitalist interests would be spared? Even more recently, remember how well that worked out when Pelosi's party thought it would be a great idea to run Hillary Clinton in 2016 and destroy Bernie Sanders at the same time? The polls and the pundits certainly thought she'd be a shoo-in to beat Trump. So let's double down on that winning strategy. If that doesn't work out, it will be all the fault of the deplorables again. If it doesn't work out, Nancy Pelosi personally will never have to suffer, nor will the Democratic donor class, who are, flushed with who are flusher with cash than ever, thanks to Trump's tax cuts and their investments in his military machine and prison industrial complex. It's a toss-up as to whether Pelosi's main problem is corruption or senility or a combination of the two when she posits that only a boring centrist can win in 2020. This boring individual will win by such a stupendous margin that Trump will never be able to challenge the results. On the other hand, the results of a Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren victory could not possibly be stupendous enough to physically scare Trump out of the White House. Only a Biden or Buttigieg or maybe a Harris would triumph in a landslide, which would bury Trump forever and ever. Glenn Thresh reports, Sitting in her office with its panoramic view of the National Mall, Ms. Pelosi, the de facto head of the Democratic Party until a presidential nominee is selected in 2020, offered Democrats her cold-blooded plan for decisively ridding themselves of Mr. Trump. Do not get dragged into a protracted impeachment bid that will ultimately get crushed in the Republican-controlled Senate, and do not risk alienating the moderate voters who flocked to the party in 2018 by drifting too far to the left. Own the center-left, own the mainstream, Ms. Pelosi, 79, said. Of course, Pelosi's version of center-left actually skews more towards right-of-center. She neglects to mention that the moderates who did win their midterm races were heavily bankrolled by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which refused financial aid to what she dismisses as the exuberances, including the victorious Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She also neglects to mention that such right-wing Democratic senators, such as Claire McCaskill and Heidi Heitkamp, lost badly in their own bids for re-election, despite their soulless, valiant efforts to appeal to the mythical center. 
The tacit message of the Times article is that if Sanders or Warren win, Trump will not go quietly, but he will magically go quietly if Biden wins. So just to make it clear, what Nancy Pelosi is scared of is that Trump will refuse, like if he loses in the president, loses the presidency in 2020, that he'll refuse to leave the White House. The guy's not a king, you know, he'll have to leave the White House if he loses. He might challenge the results, and in fact, that's likely if it's close, but he's still not a king. You know, he's not going to just get to stay there. And that's what she's saying. We should vote for centrists so that King Trump can't refuse to leave. It's a very ridiculous argument. If you really want to dig right down the to the center of the centrist id, Pelosi doesn't even want a Democrat in the White House. She'd rather dance the triangulation tango with Trump for four more years. Pelosi is trying to gaslight the electorate at the same time she dog whistles her reassurances to nervous Democratic Party donors, who have made no secret of the fact that they dread Sanders or Warren in the White House because both these candidates threaten to unconscionably use their power to serve people who don't have as much money as the big donors and the corporate lobbyists do. She claims that if Democrats would just cringe pragmatically and appease Trump now, he will be less nasty and dangerous, less likely to irrevocably poison the minds of the malleable against the Democrats during primaries and the general election. She bizarrely calls this her cold-blooded plan for victory. I'll grant her the cold-blooded part, and I'll even compliment her for having one hell of an overdeveloped lizard brain to go along with all that ice in her veins. Her strategy amounts to pretending to be scared and disgusted by the Trump administration in public, but being complicit with and accommodating to the Trump administration in private. Pelosi seems confident that the actual public is not reading about this cynical strategy in the Times, mostly because they probably can't afford the subscription, despite working several jobs. And if the bottom 80% or so of the reading public are perusing the Times, maybe Pelosi can instill the requisite doubt and fear into their psyches. I doubt that she cares about anybody but her donors. The underlying message to her real constituents is that she's got their backs. She's cold-bloodedly pushing the scales, hers and theirs. One thing to keep in mind about how many times about many Times articles and op-eds is that they are essentially telegraph messages from the rich to the rich. But in a show of egalitarianism, they are happy to offer the lesser people a tiny box with, with which to share their expertise, 1,500 characters or less, with their peers. If you are very lucky, your comment will be accepted by some mystery algorithm and make a point. And make it into print, excuse me. Blanked out for a second. <laughs> if you write from a centrist, pragmatic point of view, a human moderator is very likely to award you a coveted golden Times pick icon. This digital badge of honor is the equivalent of a jolt of dopamine and will encourage you to write more centrist and influential comments in the future. So I think you get the point here. The point is that Nancy Pelosi apparently doesn't know anything about politics at all. She apparently doesn't know anything about America at all. She apparently doesn't know a thing about American citizens. She doesn't know what people need and want and are voting on. She's, for someone who's been in politics for so long, she knows nothing about politics.